0: that we'll pray and we'll get into our passage father we do thank you and praise you for your word lord we pray that as we continue our journey through uh, this letter uh, by the apostle peter that you would uh, lord that your spirit would illuminate the meaning of the words written here father we pray that they would be um that they would come alive to us that we would allow them to um to convict us, to guide us, to direct us, Lord. We pray, Lord, that in the midst of our our busy schedules, our busy weeks, uh, the cares of this world, that you would help us just to to stop now and to focus on your word, to allow you to speak to us. We thank you, Lord, that you are moving in our midst. We desire to know you, Lord, more intimately, uh, more deeply. And so we pray that as we study your word, that you would uh, just bless us, encourage us, and guide us. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. <clears throat> the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us now. In Christ's good name we pray. Amen. I really love this passage. As we've been working through Peter, he's, he's dealt with a number of, of lofty um, things, clearly a man who walked with Christ, who knew Christ, who, whom God used to speak some great doctrinal truths about who we are in relationship to God and what God has done in our behalf. Last week we came out, out of this, um, the last week's section, we dealt with a sort of this, this warning to, to get serious with God, to uh, to stay on. The seed is the word of God. Those, beso- This devil taking away the seed or um, what was the other one there? There's, I'm looking right at it, but the, the rocky soil difficulty comes and they're sort of washed away. And it's heartbreaking for any of us who have had somebody that, that we knew was once walking with God and now they're not walking with God and you are walking with God. It's, it's heart-wrenching. And, and Peter in our passage today is encouraging us, c- encouraging the church to, to go the distance, to, to, to do these things, to grow closer to God. A couple other passages really quickly. If you'll go with me to Ephesians chapter 2. I want to look at probably this. Uh, I'm guessing this is next to John 3.16. It's probably in the top 10 of passages that people know. And Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So in this very opening phrase, Paul says, you can't earn your salvation, your relationship with God, your security in God, your, everything is based on what he's done for you. It's given to you by grace freely. You respond through faith. Your works don't increase God's love for you. They don't make you right with God. It's simply the work on the cross that he died for you. And when you believe in his work, when you trust upon his work, you're sealed by the spirit and you're secure. But then we get to verse 10, which many don't know. They sort of disconnect Ephesians 2.8 from the context And in verse 10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And so the Bible throughout makes it clear that When you were saved, you're saved by grace. But then when you're saved, we'll see in today's passage that that God gifts you. And he calls you into fellowship to be connected amongst a local body. To to utilize, to employ your, your gifts amongst the body of Christ. If you'll turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Here the author is the same thing, encouraging very much. In the same way that we'll look at today. And in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 23. The author writes. Let us hold fast. The confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some. But encouraging one another. And all the more. As you see the day drawing near, you can go to first Peter, but here the author sort of, he gives us this warning that we're, we're called as believers to fellowship with one another, that, that being connected and a part of a local church family is critical to your Christian life. The whole Christian, Christian, Life is not a Lone Ranger game. The Bible over and over says that this time that we have together and amongst one another is super critical. And that our time together is to be marked with encouraging one another, stimulating one another to love and good deeds. For the day is drawing near, as the author of Hebrew says. Same thing that our passage starts with today. It says, for the end of all things is, is near, That there's this drive that that time is running out and that we are to be motivating one another, encouraging one another. It doesn't seem to go the way that I would suspect it to go in looking at, you know, media and novels about end times. I'm going to skip a little bit ahead and then sort of come back. But he says, he says, the end of all things is near. And the last thing that I would expect him to say is the four things that he commands us to do, which the first thing is he commands us to be uh, calm and collected in prayer for the purpose of prayer. He tells us to love one another. He tells us to be hospitable. And he tells us to put your spiritual gift to use. In the midst of all of these things, these, these four commands don't seem to, to fit in many ways. It's it's almost too simple. I, I stumbled across a quote from Martin Luther, and I, I'm going to hack it because I didn't write it down. but it said that Martin Luther he was asked, "If you knew that today was the end, what would you do today? And he said, "I would plant a tree and pay my taxes." And he said, you know, the, the point was, I live every day towards understanding that the end is, is near. And so with this phrase, the end is near. There's a lot of different directions I could go. I could spend a lot of time giving you my, my, my two cents on my perspective of eschatology, which is a $3 word that I learned in seminary which I didn't really care anything about before seminary. We could, you know, come up with all sorts of things. But the, the thing is, is when I see how many Christians respond to the, to the warning or the reminder concerning the end times in scriptures, I feel like we go off the wrong direction. I think there's... There's two different directions that we tend to go. The, the the one direction is that we don't really care it's it's just it's just a fairy tale. It's sort of allegory. It doesn't really mean what it says. There's a danger on that side. Now the other extreme which I think is more common in the circles that I I run to is there's this deep reading and studying and trying to sense everything that's going on, the timing of things, how's it going to work out? Let's get this whole structure of how the end's going to come about as if God has uh, made it our responsibility to flip the switch at the right time. Well, I have news for us. None of us is responsible for flipping the switch. So you can go, because I would have pulled the switch a long time ago on accident. But what I see when the Bible, there's a couple things that I see when the end times is sort of mentioned for Christians. First and foremost, hope. You read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the whole purpose. And where I had my big change of heart and how I'd address this, when I was in seminary at a Bible study, and we were all fighting and arguing over when we thought the end was coming and how it would unravel and we totally missed the whole... The one thing it says to do, encourage one another with these words. We were hardly encouraging one another with these words. We were, we were fighting and arguing with one another over these words. And so the point that I want to emphasize, and what I think Peter is emphasizing here, without going in... And, and I have thoughts on this. I, I don't mind talking about it. I'm not trying to hide from it. But I think that the thing that we need to realize is important is I do think that that one of the things he's saying is that there's no more prophetic event that needs to happen before things kind of wrap up to their end. Um, even in a practical sense, which I think is sort of departing from the text says is, guys, our lives are going to be like this. Like our time here on earth is so, so, so short. Anybody who I know who's, you know over 80 they say i still feel like a young person i don't know what happened to my body i don't know like i still feel young but it's like life is passing along we're we're about a vapor none of us knows how much time we have left left last night i just found out anna said did you know this girl i said oh yeah 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 she's like did you see all your your facebook feed i'm like no i haven't really been paying attention But this girl who I went to high school with, who's like 38, she's younger than me, 38, mom of two. On Monday, she had a total full-blown heart attack, and by Friday, she was dead. And it's like sober, and I'm not one to say, hey, fear, but there's also like the the reality, like the odds of that happening to any one of us at a young age, it's typically that's not, it's abnormal to be that young and to, to die of a heart attack. But I find that the older I get, the younger people seem to be when they're dying. And I'm like seeing events when she died. My whole concern was like scanning through everything, trying to figure out how she died. Because if it was a car accident, I'd be like, well, I drive safe. So I can kind of, I can keep my time going longer. But what I hate is when you start digging and you go, huh, a heart attack by a 38 year old. How can that be? Cancer. How can it be? And so I think what Peter is telling us is, guys, this isn't a game. Life is short. And for them, it was really short. They, this is Peter who would be executed by Nero. Most of the early church, they were executed for their faith. It was a reality that to profess Christ as Savior, then to be baptized meant you had a good chance of being executed for following him. and i think that the the bible is continually pointing us to take your relationship with god seriously and this this passage is so simple there are four things pray love one another be hospitable use your gift all for his glory is the goal all right guys that's it have a good day that's all i know you guys know better than that but these are very simple things. But, the, but this is what God wants from us as followers of Christ. That This is our lives matter. And so the very first thing he starts with. Uh, the end is near. Therefore, therefore, in light of this reality that the end is near, that our time is short. Be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. The idea of that through Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, our faith in him, that we've been placed into the body of Christ, that we no longer are enemies of God, that we have relationship with the creator and sustainer of the universe, the one that holds all things together and that we're encouraged to pray and to communicate and to walk with him. He says, don't freak out because the end is near. Don't stockpile a bunch of food. I mean, you can stockpile food. I'm not saying that that's bad. Like, I, I'm kind of going into the end times on faith, you know, like, well, I'll figure it out when it happens, if I'm still here. Um, he doesn't call us to panic. He doesn't call us to scare each other with it. He uses this idea of Sound judgment, sober spirit. This is, this is being calm, cool, collected. The end is near. That's okay. I know the creator. Whatever happens, I'm going to be fine. If I abide with him and in him and I'm living my life in fellowship with my creator, I have nothing to like worry about. And there's something beautiful about how prayer calms us and eases us. If you struggle with anxiety and you wake up in the middle of the night, like I'd encourage you just memorize the Lord's Prayer and begin praying through the the Lord's Prayer or Psalm 23. And as we pray, as we seek Him, there's something about this relationship that calms us. And I almost think that prayer, I, I want to kind of come back to it because I think that it's connected to verse 8. See, now he says, above all, keep fervent. This word fervent is the idea of like a horse when it's galloping, like stretching out, like an intensity about doing it. Um, be fervent in your love for one another. And notice that word keep. He's not beating them up saying, you guys need to kickstart it. Like take it up a notch. He says, keep fervent. They were doing it. They were loving one another. That their faith was manifesting itself in love for one another. Because love covers a multitude of sins. And I've been, what's the deal with this love? Why is love so important in the Christian life? Why doesn't Peter expand on this more? Like what does it mean to love one another? And I love this. This is in the context of the local body. This is us in this room. Those who call this your home church, this, this is us that we are to be fervent in our love for one another. And do we force love or is love a byproduct? And I, like who better to go to than the apostle of love, right? Well, if you agree with me or not, we're going to go to First John. If you go to First John. I started to think, well, what is John? You know, he's got this reputation for being the uh, the apostle of love, and over in First John chapter, I think it's chapter four, verse seven. It's a long section. So First John four verse seven through five three. This passage jumps out at me. This. This young man during Jesus's earthly ministry would be the longest living apostle, the only one to die of of a natural death and not because um, they didn't try to kill him. They attempted to kill him and he survived and their paranoia of the supernatural basically exiled him to the island. And he writes 1 John, he writes Revelation and and history knows him as the apostle of love. He was so transformed by Jesus's love for him That in his writings, he never refers to himself by his name. He only refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. Not separating himself from everybody else like he was better, but simply that he understood how much Jesus loved him and it transformed his whole life. And in this passage, I don't know how many verses it is. is. I'm just going to read it. I'm not going to comment on it. But in this section, the word love is used 32 times. So as I read through it, just sort of keep your ear attuned to the word love and see what he says about love. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God for God is love. For this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world So that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him. And he is sent; he is in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he is in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him by this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love cast out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and whomever Whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. By this we know we love the children of God. When we love God and observe his commandments, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So I know that was a lot. And if I could summarize this in one or a few sentences is the love that we're commanded to do, Peter says to love one another. As we look at John's writing, who's expanded greatly from what Peter says, it's clear that God is love. God has reached out to us. He's poured his love into us. He sent his, his son, Jesus, for us out of love. When we receive Christ as Savior, we are filled with God, who is love. And it's almost this this picture... I imagine a hose and a bucket and you're filling the bucket up like a kid who's not paying attention and you're doing something else and the the hose is pouring water into the bucket. Eventually the bucket comes to the top and then it's just like overflowing with water. I feel that's the picture that John makes, that when God impacts our life, when he comes to us and he dwells within us, he just pours in love to our hearts that's so overflowing that it affects everything the the love is the evidence that we've received the love of god he says for us who are believers to measure one another that when we see this love being poured out by an individual it's evidence that they know god for not to have love is 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 a worrisome sign and so peter here describes this over first peter after prayer above all keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins and so i think that if we have this love for one another if we've if we're abiding with god and we have this love it it manifests itself into prayer we're we're called to pray and in my own life this I'm not I never try to use prayer as a, as a time to convict you of oh you don't pray enough you need to pray more none of us prays enough and I never have met this standard and when I look at my own life and I say you know what I feel like I'm in a good season of prayer that's normally a secondary sort of effect of that my walk with God is really good, that I feel close with him, that I'm intimate with him, that I wake up in the morning and I just seek him and and it ebbs and flows. There's times in my life when it's just like, I just kind of feel grumpy and it's like, well, I'm not, I know that I'm not walking with him. I'm not abiding with him and my flesh is sort of taking over. And so I think prayer is sort of this, this thermometer or thermostat, I think thermometer to measure how we're doing with God. And when we're doing well with God, we're fervent in our love for one another. But the problem is, is that we can get caught up in the motions. We can get caught up in religion. We can get caught up in all of this stuff. We're externally, we look like we're doing okay. But the reality is we've, we've walked away. In Revelation chapter two, John, the apostle, the apostle of love as he's exiled on an island, he gets this revelation of one of the churches, the church of Ephesus. The book of Ephesians is this great, wonderful letter. It's probably one of my favorite books in the Bible. We see that Paul, as he's under arrest and heading to Rome, he passes, uh, in Acts, he passes Ephesus. He goes south to Miletus. He calls all of the elders from Ephesus and he warns them that there are wolves amongst them, that they need to guard the flock. That They need to take it very seriously of defending the doctrine. And so we come to Revelation chapter 2 and God has some things to say many years later about this church in Ephesus. And in verse 2 of chapter 2 of Revelation... We read, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you have found them to be false. And you have perseverance, have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. This is all very good. They're getting an attaboy. You're doing great, guys. You guys are protecting the doctrine. You're keeping the wolves away from the flock. And then we come to verse 4. And we read, But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds that you did at first. As we go back to Peter, I think this is sort of the I think this is sort of like the warning. See, we're commanded in the positive sense that we're to be fervent in prayer, fervent in your love for one another. But the opposite of this, to, to, to be slacking in our prayer, to be lacking in our love for one another, I think it's the root of that we're not abiding in Christ, that we're not walking with him. Because these aren't external jobs just to do. These are, these are outflowing byproducts of our being exposed to the love of God as we walk in his love. And John warns in Revelation that what had happened is they were still doing all of the very external things, but their love for God has waned and God cares most about the heart. So this is a, what I want to guard about is, I, I don't want you guys to get, you know, the book of common prayer and just open it up in the morning and just start reading the book of common prayers to fulfill this command prayer is simply communicating talking with God this above all, all be fervent in your love that this they're so commingled when Ann and I were married for about I don't know I think we've been married for I don't know what year it was but we a couple of years we went to this marriage retreat It must have been well, the first fires 2003 is that when the first fires were So 2003, we've been married about a year. And so we went with a group of people to this family life conference, this marriage retreat. And one of the guys was super funny. And he was saying that as a speaker, he can tell how long people have been married just by looking at them. And he went through this, I'm not him and I don't remember the details, but he was like, well, if they've been married for over 50 years, there's typically like a seat or two in between them. And he starts describing like the settings of how the spouses interact. And he's like, then you have the girl that's sitting on the boy's lap. They're dating. And he kind of like makes the big joke that how like over the course of years that, that marriage, we tend to, to grow apart unless you, you work on it. And I'm thinking of this as as Peter calls us to have this prayer life. When you get saved and when you start in your walk with God, there's excitement, there's fellowship, there's joy. You tend to pray. And then as you learn the ropes of Christianity and you start doing all the external things, it's really easy to grow cold and sterile in your relationship with God where it's all external and there's no relationship. And Peter's warning of that. Be sober-minded, fervent in your prayer, like maintain your relationship with God. And as you maintain your relationship with God, it's going to manifest itself in your relationship with others. Keep fervent in your love for one another. And we should really examine how is your love for God? How is your love if you're married for your spouse, your immediate family? How how does this command work itself out? I'm convinced that God cares. second to our relationship with God is our immediate family, our marriages, if we go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, which I'm not going to do, he's already addressed how important our relationships are within our marriage. Even if you're married to a non-believer, God cares about that. And then as we love within our family, there's our extended family, there's our church family here, that we love one another. And as a pastor at this church... Like I am so blessed by the love that I get, that I'm allowed to kind of see. I feel like I have a very special position that I see how people sort of engage with one another. Like Ben, you know, two weeks ago, Beth goes down for a gallbladder. I kind of am like, well, he's always like orchestrating the meals for people. Let's make sure we take care of Ben and his family. And a couple of people told me they're going to make a meal, but I didn't really know the whole deal. And Ben like, keeps writing me. He's like, Man, I'm like overwhelmed by the love of people from this church. People keep bringing food. I'm like, I haven't heard anything, man. But it's beautiful for me, like when I see how we love one another. And then there's this harder phrase that I haven't really addressed. It says, love covers a multitude of sins. And see, there's a couple things that this doesn't mean, that we know from the whole of context. This doesn't mean that a person's sins are are wiped away just by love. Like a person doesn't come to Christ just because you like love the way that their sins are paid for is through the cross. There's that's clear. And this isn't necessarily like as the church a persons in sin that we're lifting up the carpet and sweeping their sin under the carpet. It doesn't mean that what I, what I believe that this means is what I've experienced in my own life. When my friend nagged me to come to church over and over and over again. And I didn't want to go. Finally, when I gave in, I said, I'll go this one time if you promised ever to ask me. And I'm going just as I am. And so I went in like my shorts, flip flops, a tattered t-shirt, just let them see who I was. And then I kept going back. And eventually I remember he approached me and he said, well, why do you keep like, why are you coming back? I only, you said you'd only go once. And I remember kind of looking at him and saying, well, there's something different about these people. Like they seem to actually care about me. Like they don't seem to care about my tattoos. They don't seem to care about me wearing flip-flops to church. Me showing, like not even having a Bible. Like I was just, it was a love that I'd never experienced before. And it didn't cover my sins. It didn't wash away my sins. But what it did was I had, they, I saw Jesus for who he was. And so for us as a church we love one another but we also like I see if whoever walks through the door whatever they look like whatever they're wearing who cares if they have tattoos and piercings all over their face we want to look through that and to them and I believe in that there's power Love is critical From this, he goes on to verse nine and he says, be hospitable to one another. This, uh, we don't need any help. I understand. I mean, hospitality during their day, especially there was no motel six saying, we'll keep the light on for you if there was a place of that it would be a red light it would be more of a brothel where you did not want people to spend the night but all through the bible i mean from genesis to revelation i i see this command to be hospitable to be caring and the, the word is not necessarily hospitality to people that you know. I'm not saying that that's bad. But there's a special emphasis on being hospitable to those that you don't know, to strangers. I have a hard enough time being hospitable to people I know. To think about the ho- hospitality to the strangers. It's difficult. This is an area I struggle with. But the Bible makes it clear that the follower of Christ is to be hospitable, that we're to welcome others into our homes, into our lives. And how awesome would it be if like, you know, just pause, look around, look around. You guys can swivel your heads, stretch it out a little bit. There are people you don't know. Like how awesome would it be? Like, hey, let's go to lunch today after church. Like, let's get together. Let's... This is what I love about Dinner 8 is it forces you know, it used to be random. Now we're like, in, now it's more like looking at all the past lists and going, who hasn't been, it's a you know, big matrix of who like didn't go with who. And it's, so now it's like pairing you with people that you don't know. Because there's beauty in inviting people into your homes, getting to know one another. It, it deepens how we are able to be intentional about loving one another. Um, There's something about inviting people into our home that helps uh, demonstrate the gospel in in full color. On the church website, there's a blog section, and I wrote something. I did not write a blog on hospitality, but Christina Fredericks did, and it was beautiful. And it was the blog she wrote was sort of like practicing the art of hospitality, and she shares sort of in very practical sort of um, guidance of how... You can be hospitable with practice and making it easier. Ben and I read a book on biblical eldership. And there was a section on there talking to the elders about how important hospitality is. And there was a line that I thought was super good. It said, hospitality can reveal kindness, compassion, and care for the needy, lost, and lonely. All qualities befitting of an elder. But hospitality does something else. It allows others to see your family in action. And it goes on to say that your families aren't perfect. Your families have issues. There's all sorts of stuff. But what what being engaged in this messy lifestyle is as you respond, you're showing how the gospel works out in an imperfect life and, and how you can love and demonstrate things in this In a way that you just can't demonstrate by me lecturing or preaching like in an hour. This life is to be lived amongst each other. And then there's a last phrase that I didn't mention yet. Without complaint. Hey, I don't like that part. And in saying that, I'm violating it. But, But I can't tell you how many times I say, oh, hey, in two weeks on Thursday, let's get together for dinner. You'll come over to our house, we'll do this. Two weeks on Thursday seems like an eternity down the road. And then Wednesday night comes around. What was I thinking? Why did I do this? This is like all this stuff. Like, why? I got to get the house perfect and immaculate and uh. See, being hospitable, I think for me, I have some very real scars from my childhood about the home was a place that we had a bunch of dirty secrets that we were hiding because there was massive abuse going on. And so having people over, it was a terrible, frightening thing. And I'm not in that anymore, but there's still this sort of within me, this protecting of my space. And I'm, and I'm way more of an introvert than, people, like, than I lead on. And so being around people like drains me. like It takes a lot of energy. I like being around people. But it's just, I recharge my battery sort of in solitude. You can lock me in a room for two weeks. I'd be perfectly content. Send me to the mountains preferably. But I'm married to this person who like builds steam and energy from being around people. And I thank God for that because like it's exactly what I needed because my background and my scars that's not an excuse to say, well, it doesn't apply to me because I have this garbage. God says, be hospitable to one another because you've received my love. You're to love one another and, and, and reaching out. It's good for me that over the years of learning to be hospitable I've learned that it doesn't mean that your house has to be immaculate and I actually really love it so I try to be blessing to other people is it's so awesome when you go to somebody's house and it's a total disaster i think i don't like this person you know because half the time we show up at other people's houses and you think that you live in like a like a a, a showroom like that you're you, you, but walking, it's like, oh, it's okay to have some dirty clothes on the floor, and like, oh, we'll clean up for you, we'll do this. But it's like, but it's living life, and he calls it uh, calls us to do this. And I and I and I'm okay, a little bit behind here. So, verse ten. This is the most important. I I, I don't want to say it's the most. For me, this is the one that comes with the absolute most conviction, most passion, most. This is sort of my life's calling. See, Ephesians 4 verses 11 through 13 say the only reason that pastors exist is it's a gifting to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so my role within the body of Christ as a pastor is to equip y'all, second person plural, which English doesn't have, but the South did write y'all. My role, Ben's role, is to help you serve in ministry. I say it all the time. I'm not in ministry because I'm a pastor. I'm in ministry because I'm a Christian. And because I'm a follower of Christ, I'm called to serve. It just happens that over the course of years where I ended up was as a pastor. Now look at what verse 10 says. As each one has received a special gift. If you are a Christian and you're in this room, don't raise your hand. But if you've given your life to Christ, the Bible makes it very clear that you have a special gift. You know, people like to get caught up in semantics and how many spiritual gifts do you have? And it's just silly to me in some ways because... Everything you have, every gift, every talent, every resource, your capacity to think, your capacity to do whatever, all of these are gifts from God. So I don't splice a lot of hairs over this. But I know for certain that if you're a Christian, at the moment of your conversion, when you believed in Christ, I believe, according to the scriptures, that at that moment you have received a gift, a supernatural gift. I didn't realize it at the time, but then as you start serving, as you start stepping out, you have something to offer this body of Christ. This local church, I am convinced for each of you that calls, calls this your church family, You've been given a gift to serve and to use and to exercise and to employ within this body. Look what it says, employ it. So many of us have our, our gift and we're sidelines or we're in the unemployment line. I, I don't know who did the math, but there's that saying that 10% of the people do 90% of the work at the church. And I don't know if that's true or not. I, don't, I feel like a lot of us at this church serve. I do know that as a pastor who is going to be accountable for your souls from this pulpit, anybody who considers this their church, the Bible makes it clear that I will give an account for those that I shepherd. And I want to make it clear that if you're not serving, it's not because I haven't told you, we'll we'll put you to use. And the thing is, my, I don't believe in creating a bunch of ministries and forcing people to fill the spots. The way I feel that it works, see, employed in serving one another is as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. This word manifold is like sort of a, a tapestry, tapestry, a beautiful sort of artwork picture that's composed of many different things. And so I don't create ministries of good ideas and say, hey, let's, let's plug in somebody for this. The idea is, how are you gifted? How are you called? What, what do you feel like God's leading you to do? Let's, let's sort of develop, nurture, guide you, start walking down the road and see where it ends up. That, but I'm convinced that we need you. However God has gifted you, we need you at this church. You are not here by accident. You have a purpose. There is a role for you within this body. I know Ben will say amen. So, on the website, he mentioned the website, so I'm feeling compelled. Like, if you go there, there's get involved, there's like spiritual tests, all all whatever. Like, we want to do whatever we can do to help you grow. Because, not serving, if you're a Christian and you're not serving, you're stifling your spiritual growth. You grow by serving. And I'm so thankful that many years ago when I became a Christian, I reached the point after like four years where I felt like I needed to be serving and I felt like I was sort of being hamstrung, but I didn't have the discipleship to understand what was happening within me. But I finally reached out to the pastor and said, I need to get involved. I need to do something. I need to serve. But I'm gone 260 days out of the year. (laughs) And he said, well, can you smile? Can you shake a hand? And so I started by when I was at church, I would shake people's hands and I would help them in. And then from there, God directed me and guided me. Okay, verse 11 and 11, we get into sort of the end goal, the where all of this is moving. He's called us to, to prayer, to love one another, to be hospitable, to employ the gift that you've been given. Then verse eleven says, Whoever speaks, you can use this you can use this as a term for a preacher, somebody who teaches the word of God. Whoever speaks is to do it as one who is speaking the utterances of God. If you're teaching a Bible study, if you're teaching at home. Whenever you open up this book and you begin teaching it, there's a great responsibility that comes with it. My heart is to preach the same way, whether there's three people in front of me or there's 5,000 people in front of me because I'm ultimately preaching before God. That these are his words, they are important. And so that if you find yourself teaching the scriptures, do it as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Then whoever serves... Going back to verse 10, each one who has received a special gift. So if you're a Christian, you have a gift. Let's employ it. So this applies to all Christians. And as you step out and you begin serving, you're to do it. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. I put some brackets. I put brackets. I don't know if brackets work for you. But by the strength of God, which God supplies. Whatever God calls you to do, it's going to be uncomfortable. I've never known God to—I've never known God to to ask me to do something that didn't basically make my knees shake. I started by shaking people's hands, and then training for a marathon on my last deployment. I'm like, oh, I'm going to do this Jesus Run Marathon that's in Denver. Don't run your first marathon in Denver. Just that was a lesson learned for me. But so I'm training, running. I got back from deployment. I had like two months. And on my run, God began to tell me to go teach a Bible study at an old person's home. And I'm like, God, you are crazy. And I'm like, I'm striking this up to like me having low oxygen to my brain. And I kept like, then I kept running. I kept running. I kept running. And every single day I would pass this convalescent home. Every single day I would hear God say, go and run in there and tell him you want to teach a Bible study. And it was like a fly. I'm like, stop it. Stop. I'm not going to do this. Finally, he drove me so nuts with conviction that I had to call him on his bluff. So I decided to call the owner of the old person's home where my grandparents died. And I call her up and I say, hey, Jeannie, I feel like God wants me to teach a a Bible study at, at an old person's home. And I just, uh, I thought I ask you, I know there's a bunch of rules, so don't worry about it. So uh, thanks a lot. You know, okay, I can't do it. It's kind of how the conversation went. And she's like, whoa, 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 whoa. This Friday, the Shangri-La, they've been asking for a Bible study for three years. Will you please go and do it? Do you guys know how funny it is that I teach? Like you guys know me as a pastor. The fact that I'm teaching the Bible on a weekly basis is hilarious. This is not anything that I was comfortable Like with. N- n- none of this is th- what I was... My The trajectory of my life was not in this direction. Going to Mexico is not comfortable. I-, I read the news and watch the news just as much as you guys. I know all the fear about going to Mexico. But see, if you've experienced the love of God and God says... Trust me, John, the passage we read, there's no fear in love. The world will tell you, they'll be surprised. Why are you going to Mexico? Why are you bringing your kids to Mexico? I've never had any problems in Mexico. I've never had any problems anywhere. That doesn't mean that I can't have problems like leaving here. But what I do know is that if I'm abiding with Christ, He is love. His love will pour into me and He will give me the strength to step out and go. Anywhere I go, guys, I tell you, I'm the first to raise my hand to go to Mexico, to go to Mongolia, to go wherever. Like, wherever. I am like paralyzed at night with fear because of my background to go to these places. Then I wake up on those days and then I go because I trust God. I believe that he wants me to go. I believe there are people that are a few miles away from us who are brothers and sisters in Christ who have no place to call their own. They have nothing. And we build a 16 by 16 plywood structure with no running water, no electricity. And they have tears in their eyes thanking us. And I'm never fearful of that day. So you might be afraid to greet somebody's hand or shake somebody at the door to welcome them to church. But I'm not asking you, the Bible's not asking us to do anything in our own strength. We're going to be asked to do things in his strength by the strength, which God supplies so that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. So first and foremost, the question that we need to ask ourselves is do we know Jesus? And if you know Jesus, the question is, are you abiding with him? Are you walking with him? Has your love for him grown cold? And this is a difficult place to be. So in Revelation, we're told that we, if we reach that place, what we're to do is to repent and to confess. Because likely it's the things of this world that is, have, have drawn us away. But then as we walk with him, these four things will, will come out in our lives. Got my notes all off here. I have to remember prayer, loving one another, hospitality, serving. And as we do those four things, he is glorified. And so Father, we thank you that um, Lord, you are so loving, you are so patient, you are so kind to us. We thank you, Lord, that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. We thank you that we know that your love. We thank you that in your love, there is no fear. And so father, we come before you confessing at times, Lord, that we are fearful. We are worrisome. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to abide in you, that we would walk with you, Lord, that we would get a, a small glimpse of the majesty of, the magnitude of your love. Father, that you would fill us with your love, that we would be a people who walk so closely with you, Lord, that we communicate with you throughout the day. We thank you for the gift of prayer that we as sinful man have this ability to talk to the creator and sustainer of the universe. It's an awesome thing. And so father, we pray that you would light the, the fire of our love for you again, or for the first time. Father, we pray that you would, that you would swell up love within our hearts, that we would be a loving people to each other amongst ourselves, to the world around us. Father, that you would help us to be hospitable, that we would in, maybe today even invite somebody to lunch or over to our home. And Father, I pray that you would help each person here who is a believer, Lord, that you would help them to discover, Lord, uh, what their gift is. That you would help Ben and I and the leadership team, Lord, to to help, Lord, uh, to place their gift into use, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, that you, you stretch us, that you grow us, Lord, by faith. Father, I pray that you would help us to to truly reach the point where we would just write you a blank check with our lives. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. Amen.